hymn number 17. Brother Eddie asked that we mark that, and we'll use that at the appropriate time a bit later in the service this evening. And as you may have noted again, how thankful we can be to be able to gather on an occasion like this one, as the shades of evening have now gathered about us to appreciate the blessings, all the physical ones of this day, and perhaps most especially the spiritual ones that have given us yet this second opportunity to assemble and to magnify the name of the great, great God of heaven. The title of the lesson this evening, taken in fact from that verse that Brother Vestal read just a moment ago, and drawn from the opening chapter of the little one-chapter one book, rather the uh, short book that is the minor prophet Haggai, will be, in fact, Consider Your Ways. And I would invite us to begin a brief series of lessons tonight giving some thought to this minor prophet. In fact, some interesting features, or at least some things about it, might take us in the following direction. Over the last couple of years or so, from time to time, we have endeavored to give some more directed thought to a series of lessons taken from a particular book of the Bible. We, in fact, looked at the book of Nahum in that fashion. We also looked at the New Testament book of Colossians in that way. And we devoted about a half year looking at the Revelation along a, a, same, a similar way to that one. Tonight, might we begin a brief series considering the little minor prophet Haggai. It is a very brief book. In fact, I've listed some of the features about that here at the bottom of that slide. It is the 37th book in the English Old Testament. And you may notice it only has two chapters and the sum total is only 38 verses. Likely it would be easily read in about five minutes. However, we shall find that the, though the prophecy is brief, although it is by no means lengthy, nonetheless it was powerful. And it in fact had a tremendous role to play in the actual faithfulness and the carrying out of the mission of the ancient people of God. And so it is that we might be able to draw some lessons from it in a brief series of our studies as well. And we'll do that beginning this evening. To do that, might I state that it would be very useful, it would seem to me, to devote some attention to the historical setting of the book. Otherwise, we will fail to appreciate the backdrop for it, the occasion of its writing, and the characteristics that are so often seen in it. And so the first part of the lesson tonight will be a rehearsal of the history surrounding the book of Haggai. And when we see that history then, the lessons will begin to flow from it relatively easily. To begin with, let's devote a rather brief bit to a lengthy discussion about the history of the ancient kingdoms found in the Old Testament. I've tried to highlight several hundred years of history on this one slide. So needless to say, it's brief. And it covers a great deal of material. When the nation of Israel first desired a king and thus built themselves into a nation not unlike those of the nations of earth, that was in fact a major step away from what God would have had them to be. And we can readily see that through three kings, first Saul and then David and then Solomon, they did enjoy a period of 120 years of a united character. But then following Solomon's reign, the kingdom split. His son was foolish in his behavior. He was by no means wise by his deportment concerning the kingdom. And so ten of the tribes seceded, if you please. They no longer wished to have any association with Jerusalem, no longer wished any association with the majority, if you please, of what had been God's blessings on that singular city. 
And so ten of the tribes pulled away and formed the northern kingdom of Israel. You notice that this took place in about 940 B.C. The southern kingdom, consisting of but two tribes, and those were Judah and Benjamin, they formed the southern kingdom of Judah. As that division took place again about 940 B.C., that only asks us to consider what happened with respect to those two individual kingdoms as the remainder of the Old Testament played out before us. First, let's give thought to that northern kingdom. It lasted, you see, only until about 722 B.C. Putting those numbers together, that's about 218 years. From the time the kingdom split, the northern kingdom only survived about 218 years. During that period of time, they suffered beneath about 20 evil, ungodly kings who directed them in ways apart from what would be the will of God. And as they suffered beneath them, finally the Assyrians came upon them and crushed them, took them into captivity. And that, in fact, is that which took place in 2 Kings 17 and is recorded for us as about the year 722 B.C. Now for the southern kingdom. Again, beginning about 940 when the kingdom split. This particular southern kingdom lasted considerably longer now than the northern kingdom. For a total of about 354 years, it survived until ultimately 586 B.C. when it too, due to the sin, the ungodliness and iniquity that had come upon it, it too was taken into captivity. But it was not to be Assyria that took it captive. It was to be Babylon. And thus, in 586 B.C., the final hammer fell, if you please, on Jerusalem. And with that destruction, the southern kingdom went into its captivity as well. That again is not the end, thankfully. Remember, ultimately the promise of God was that Jesus would come through the lineage of these peoples. And hence, we do find that the Old Testament isn't complete. Because that nation that we have studied so far as Babylon... It ruled the world for roughly five decades or so, but then it too was conquered. In that rather remarkable battle of 539 B.C., the Persians conquered, you see, the Babylonians. The ruler of Persia on that occasion was a gentleman named Cyrus. The Old Testament, roughly 200 years before he was born, had prophesied that there would be a little boy, a baby boy, born by the name of Cyrus. He will be the prophets declared, the instrument of God that will allow God's people to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild that city that had been destroyed. Indeed, Cyrus was the Persian king. When he, in fact, had the control, it wasn't long after that conqueror of Babylon that he signed a decree, an edict, if you please, that allowed any of the peoples that wished to do so to return to Jerusalem and to thus rebuild that city. I've listed that in some of the features there near the bottom of that slide. The details of that decree of Cyrus are found in the book of Ezra. In the first three chapters of that book, we read about how that, that decree, in fact, specifically gave information that anyone who had the desire, had the, in, in fact, the blessing of Cyrus to return and to rebuild Jerusalem to any extent that they wanted. And as we'll see later in the lesson, there was one especial matter that Cyrus mentioned in his decree. One or two last things on this slide. 
Many of the Jews were excited to return to Jerusalem. Remember, they had been forcibly removed from it some years earlier by Nebuchadnezzar. And now with this blessing and this decree, many of them were overjoyed at the thought of returning to their homeland, the place where their ancestors had been. Now it should be quickly noted, it's not that they were returning to a pristine place. From that time of 586 B.C. until the, the return in 536 B.C., that's 50 years. That allowed the city of Jerusalem over 50 years to fall into a rather sad state of disrepair. The walls had been destroyed. The temple had been ransacked and burned. The houses of the nobles, by and large, had also been burned. Many of the other places over that period of time would have dilapidated and deteriorated. These Jews that returned did not return to a city prepared for them. There was much work to be done. There was a great deal of repair and investment that had to be made to rebuild that temple, to rebuild the walls, to rebuild all the houses, and to put that city back into a place that would be livable and into a way that would be, in fact, inhabitable. It is to be noted that when Zerubbabel led that group back, much work rested before them, and such work as might be described in ways like this. There was a very desperate need, in fact, an exceedingly severe need for reestablishing not just the physical character that we've discussed so far. In fact, the most critical need was to put back in place the national religious life of this people. They needed to again begin to offer the sacrifices, just as Moses had commanded in the law of Moses. They needed to offer all those things at the temple, just like God had commanded. They, in essence, needed to reestablish the proper Mosaic order of worship. For all this time in Babylon, they had not been near a temple. They hadn't been in place to where they could offer all of that that God had ordered and commanded them to do. And now they had the opportunity, not just to return and rebuild themselves a house, but to rebuild God's house. To put back in place a temple in which they could offer sacrifices and offerings, the various pieces of showbread and the other matters that went with it, all of that needed to be put back in place. As you can see in some of the features of this slide, that now takes us to that particular decree of Cyrus. In Ezra chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, when he signed that proclamation, giving information and in fact giving the impetus for their return, the very thing that Cyrus mentioned is they were supposed to rebuild the temple. That was the matter of greatest interest to him. Cyrus in particular put it in language like this. He affirmed that the God of heaven had communicated with him and given his special order that... These people needed to return and rebuild the temple. And thus Cyrus made available to them instruments, lumber, pieces of metal, and all the things needed to rebuild that temple. As you can see, when they returned, in a period of some two years, we can begin to see that they did in fact begin to build that temple. They worked with great interest and great fervency and they laid its foundation. In fact, the book of Ezra lays a special emphasis upon the viewpoint toward how joyous it was that they laid the foundation. 
They were involved in the work and it was proceeding along the pathways to bring back again a temple and a placement wherein the people could worship and do so in accordance to the plan and will of God. But now you'll notice something sad. Not everybody in that area was happy with the thought of rebuilding Jerusalem. There were adversaries. There were enemies that not only did not wish Jerusalem rebuilt, but they, in fact, invested effort to purposefully strive so that it would not be. These adversaries, in fact, caused the laborers to not be able to work. After all, it's hard to swing a shovel when perhaps there's an enemy nearby with a bow and arrow. You have to, in fact, try to protect yourself, and thus the work was hindered. The work was, in fact, severely hampered. So much so was it hampered that for 14 long years, not a single thing was done on the temple. The foundation had been laid, but no more was done. There was the foundation itself ruining over a period of some 14 years, and they were unable to complete it. They did not complete it on that occasion. It is at this point that we come to the book of Haggai, for it is at this very point that God stirs up the work. Ponder it with me, if you would, for 14 long years with a foundation laid, no more was done. God chooses the following means to stir up the people. He commissioned Haggai to come and light a fire beneath them, if you will, to urge them to return to the work and complete it, to stir within them a desire to complete that work that they had begun 14 years earlier. And it is with that in mind that Haggai served a tremendously vital role He was, in fact, God's spokesman to stir within their hearts a desire to complete that work that had been begun earlier. And oh, how well Haggai did his job. In fact, you'll notice that in 23 days they had done far more than they had done in 14 previous years. For when we come to verse 15 of Haggai chapter 1, we learn the success that they all did as they started again to work together and to work toward the completion of that temple. Amazingly, you notice that the hindrance that had been noted earlier, namely those enemies, was not the only thing that hampered and hindered the work of these people. Because the book of Haggai is also very clear. Part of the problem rested in themselves. It was not the enemies. In fact, here's the quotation. The people said, The time has not come that the Lord's house should be built. It is with that thought in mind I would invite you to read with me the first six verses of Haggai chapter 1 with the following things, or rather the preceding things noted. That sets the stage for what we're now about to read. You remember again, the work had been stagnant for so long. Notice what takes place. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month and the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jozadek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. 
Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. A rather stern and thunderous prophecy, wouldn't you say? As we've just listened to the way in which God stirred up the people. As He stirred them up, I might submit that there are several lessons drawn from these opening verses that you and I can use to encourage ourselves in the way to live even today in a way that's more proper and more fitting before the eyes of our Heavenly Father. It is with that in mind, let's look at our opening lesson. It is, in fact, what seems to me to be the key verse to the whole book. The key verse to the book of Haggai. It's that text, again, read earlier in our hearing, and the one that we just noticed as well, recorded in verses 5 and 7. Consider your ways. We noted earlier that part of what started the people's fact of not completing the temple was that there were adversaries. But that by no means explained all of it. You see, as we noted earlier, a large part of it rested in themselves. Consider your ways, God said. What about your own self-examination? Are you sure you've really wanted to complete it? Are you sure that you have actually had a degree of excitement to carry out what has been the plan and the command and will of God? Consider your ways. And might I ask you to notice those words appear here so clearly, not just once, but twice. Consider your ways. It is with that in mind that these lessons seem to come to us. Those people were in a dire need for self-examination. For 14 years, day by day, they'd walked by the foundation and never once had lifted a hand to try and finish it. Never once had lifted a shovel or a pick or a tool to try and complete what once had been started. For 14 years, day by day, they'd seen it, but never strove to complete it. What about a lesson taken from that that could be so useful and helpful to you and me today? Randy Bybee, consider your ways. All of us are in need of self-examination, aren't we? Every one of us. None of us stand aloof from that need. None of us stand exempt from the requirement of that. All of us need to thoroughly and carefully and rather seriously think, where do I stand in light of what God has said? Have I fooled myself in thinking that I'm all right when in fact I have been derelict in my duties? I have failed in the very thing God has commanded of me? It is easy sometimes to fool ourselves, isn't it? Consider your ways. Look at some of the ways the New Testament urges upon us the, need, the needfulness of self-examination. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, the inspired apostle directly writing to the congregation at Corinth. These, in other words, were individuals who were members of the church, just like you and me. And Paul said to them very clearly and very straightforwardly, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. In other words, to the church, he said, critically examine your life against what God has commanded. How sure are you really when you compare it to God's Word that you're doing everything you can in light of His commandments? Are you using your talents and your time? Are you investing your life as would be pleasing to God? Consider your ways. 
in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. Even on an occasion when you and I think about the Lord's Supper, we're commanded to examine ourselves. Do you and I thus examine our lives as we give thought to the Lord's Supper? Paul on that occasion said that in Corinth again, on that occasion, many were taking of it and not examining themselves. And because of that, they were weak and sickly. And they were taking of it in an abusive way. He said, examine yourselves. May I submit all of us thus are in need, just like the people of Haggai's day, to critically self-examine ourselves against the perfect standard of the Word of God. That standard is highlighted in James chapter 1. Isn't it interesting what a mirror can show you? Sometimes your hair is out of place. Maybe you don't know it and suddenly you look in a mirror and realize that for half the day my hair has been messed up. Others have seen me like this or I've had food on my face. I've had a spot on my clothes. A mirror points all of that out, doesn't it? In the same way, this is the perfect law of liberty. If I will honestly allow my life to be reflected by it, it will show me every imperfection. It will show me every flaw, everything that ought to be fixed. Consider your ways. And so one of our first lessons is simply this. All of us need to have a tender heart of self-reflection and self-examination in which we frequently, as we read the Scriptures, will just ask, Am I doing this? Am I guilty of what was condemned here? Or am I, in fact, striving to allow the things God has commanded in a good way to fill my life so that I will not be in a position of leaving undone those things that God has commanded? Second lesson. You'll notice even beyond that, a matter of priority. Isn't it true that that really was the main problem? Again, day by day, the temple foundation was laid, but they were not interested in completing it. Why not? Because their priorities were somewhere else. In fact, notice the bottom of that slide with me. The people had the capacity and they had the opportunity. Do you remember that Cyrus had told them, you take with you all the supplies you need. They had all the lumber needed. They had all the digging tools required. They had all enough labor to complete the work. The problem was not that they didn't have the supplies. The problem was they didn't have the priority to use them. You might have noted in one of the verses that we read, particularly verse 4 of chapter 1, we learn what the people had done with those supplies. Let's read that verse again. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? God there uses a very powerful play on words. In the previous verse, He had said, You people say it's not time to complete the house of the Lord. But then He says, So is it time for you to build your own houses? And you'll notice He uses an interesting adjective, sealed, C-E-I-L-E-D. They had taken that fine lumber, and they had taken those fine supplies they hadn't just allowed them to go to waste. They'd use them to build their own houses. All of that material that was dedicated to be used for the cause of God's temple, they had put it to use in their own houses. Oh, they'd been busy all right, but their priority was, was self. My house and what I would desire rather than first and foremost to get God's house in order. It's not to say now that God wished them to live out with no protection. 
But they did have the opportunity, and they had the means to complete God's house, perhaps along with the temple, but they hadn't done it. They had put their priority on taking care of themselves first. It is with that in mind that this issue of priority was a critical one, and they needed an attitude adjustment. And so God sent Haggai to them, Consider your ways. You've built your own houses and let God's house lie waste. Now what does that say? Might I submit that here are some thoughts that challenge us today in, in, in a very similar fashion. Do you and I choose to take care of self all the while that the things of God lay waste? The visitation of his sick, the other matters that go along with the character of upbuilding and appreciating the nature of God's kingdom? It's not to say that we must always forfeit the things that would be good for our families. But you see, we can do both. Do we, however, forfeit things in God's kingdom, taking care of ourselves? It's not time to do that. I'll let someone else take care of that. Isn't that the job for the elders? Isn't that the job for the deacons? Let the older people take care of that. You see, all the while, perhaps we're in the very same situation. It's a matter of priority. It's not that I can't, it's that I don't. Because I've directed my attention, I've directed my efforts, my energy, my zeal somewhere else. You might note God wasn't pleased with these people. He sent them Haggai and lit a fire in their bones so that they would get back to work with what they should have been doing all along. Might we take note, can a man rob God? In our day today, is it possible for you and me to rob God? That's what these people were doing. All that material that should have been used to build God's house, they used it for their house. Those efforts, those supplies, those issues... Today, what about me and what about you? Those capabilities that you and I have been given, are we misusing them or failing to use them in the way that we should and thus by that we're robbing God of the potential and possibility that could rightly be directed to Him? It is a sobering thought, isn't it? In the words of Malachi 3.8, the answer to the question must be yes. For there God asks a question, Can a man rob God? And then he said, yes, he can. And he said, furthermore, to the people of Malachi's day, you have robbed me. Here were a people directly guilty of robbing God. You and I might ask, well, how could a person rob God? He owns everything. The earth is His, Psalm 24, 1. God says, you've robbed me because you haven't used the potential, the talents and capability that I gave you in the way that was to my glory. And thus, is it not possible for us to be guilty of the same today? When you and I withhold from Him that which rightfully is His, that which He gave us and expects us to use to His glory, we're robbing Him. His name could be magnified, and yet by our failure we withhold it. The exaltation that could come by virtue of others coming to know Him, and we rob Him of that opportunity. It is something to consider, and you might notice... In the New Testament, we have these descriptions of individuals and of circumstances that in fact bring this even more closely to mind. In 2 Timothy 4.10, there's a gentleman by the name of Demas. And we are there particularly told that Demas has forsaken me because he has loved this present world. Demas was an individual who could have continued to be the companion of Paul. 
He could have been a noble individual to carry forth the work of the gospel, and yet Paul says, he's forsaken me. He's loved the present world. He's been caught up in all the materialistic matters and what the world offers, and he no longer is interested in pursuit of the kingdom of God. Isn't that a tragedy? And yet I suspect that between all of us gathered here, we could probably list a hundred people in that same situation. Those who once perhaps were faithful. They were here when the doors were open and seemed excited about the work of God. And yet, by some means and by some way, events have happened and they no longer are characterized in the same way. How sad. In another passage, in Matthew 6, Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What then ought to be your priority and mine? May we not be like they of Haggai's day who allowed the temple foundation to lay there stagnant and dormant, but rather may we with excitement work upon the work God has given us so that it will be a great house built unto His glory and unto His exaltation. That does bring us to lesson three. Isn't it amazing that the matter of work was a vital one? Here, the people were in fact released from Babylonian captivity and given the opportunity to return to Jerusalem. But you'll notice God didn't miraculously build the temple for them. And He didn't miraculously build the walls of the city for them. And He didn't miraculously reconstruct all that was necessary. He said, it's your work. He commissioned them to do it. Isn't it that way for you and me in the church today? In fact, isn't it so often as we appreciate the thought about it there at the bottom, the very nature of the necessity of the work that is yours and mine. God will not miraculously make the Pippin Church what He wants it to be. That work is left to us, isn't it? Under the direction and guidance of our elders, the work is yours and mine. It is to be noted that several passages challenge us along that line. In Philippians 2, verse number 12, we interestingly note the following. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There is a work then that was necessary on that occasion for the church in Philippi, and that was a work that involved individual investment. And thus today that similar pattern holds true. What, is, what are you able to do and what am I able to do? Are we busy doing it? Or are we sitting by waiting for someone else to do it? Or are we just content to let it go undone completely? That is a good question, isn't it? It's a very challenging one to say the least. In the people of Haggai's day, the temple needed to be completed. They had done the foundation, but that wasn't enough. Partial effort toward the completed work was not good enough. May we never forget today, our sufficiency is of God. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. When we thus allow His Word to be our guiding direction, we too will find a completeness and a satisfaction that we are able to find in no other way. This issue of work is also highlighted in the feature scene in Titus 2 verse 14 as well as Titus 3 verse number 14. There is a set of words used in both those verses. It is the phrase, good works. You'll notice that that does include the word works, doesn't it? 
God, in fact, through Christ, has purchased you and me a people zealous of good works. And one chapter later we read that you and I are to necessarily consider it a needful thing to be busy in good works. Are you and I doing that? We should be if we're to be pleasing to God. And how thankful for individuals like Haggai who challenge us to ever be mindful of the good works that should rest before us. And not only that, our labor toward completing them. In James 2, 17 and 18, we notice this rather powerful and thought-provoking matter. He said, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Question. How is your faith and mine manifested? In what way do we illustrate it to God or anyone else? It's illustrated by those works that we do. And hence, no works, no faith. Without works, the faith at most is dead. And thus, that faith is not active, it's not living, it's not alive, it's not promptive toward the end that's desirable. Can we not see then that in Haggai's day, work was necessary then just as surely as it is today? That does take us, doesn't it, to perhaps the final thought of the lesson this evening. The fourth lesson, the matter of a bad investment. Perhaps in the current economy, we're well aware of what a bad investment can be and we're, and we're aware of what a bad investment can do, how destructive it can be. Did you notice as we read verse 6 a moment ago, Haggai talked about a bad investment. Let's reread verse 6 and put in place the thought of what meaning that might have for you and me today. Haggai chapter 1, verse number 6. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. It's the last part of that verse that I would call to your attention and mine as we close the lesson tonight. We're all aware of the needfulness of a good investment. God allows us to occupy a job, and we should take that funds and that money and perhaps use it wisely, investing it wisely, so that in the future good dividends may come from it. You'll notice, figuratively, what were they doing with the wages that they had been blessed to enjoy? He says, you've put it into a bag, but amazingly, you've put it into a bag with holes in it. So you put the money into it and the money just drops right out the holes in the bag. You don't have anything to show for the labor that you have invested. Poor investment. Bad investment. What lessons might there be in that for you and for me? The question, in fact, will revolve around this one. In regard to your life and mine, is your life likened into a bag with holes in it? Or is your life likened into a complete bag in which that is put in can then serve for future benefit to bring forth much by way of interest or usefulness or otherwise? I've tried to state some of those matters like this. Their efforts, you see, had been misdirected. We noted earlier that rather than building on God's house and having an excitement and an eagerness and a desire to complete it, they had built their own houses with finery and luxury and sealedness characteristic of its ceilings. 
they had misdirected their labors, that was a bad investment on their part. For 14 years, God's temple was dormant. 14 years, they could have long since had it completed. And they, in that period of time, could have enjoyed a proper and active worship. This question perhaps is a good one. For those 14 years, where did they worship? It clearly wasn't in a temple, for they didn't have one. Where did they offer the sacrifices that God through Moses commanded? The book of Ezra doesn't make mention of it. Thus, it would seem that worshiping God rightly wasn't very much a priority to them. It doesn't seem that completing His temple was of high priority at all. Their priorities were misdirected, and thus the direction and work of their life had been misdirected. Isn't it sad to think about a misdirected life? Ponder this with me. A person comes to near the end of his working career, perhaps age 65, age 70, and he comes to appreciate that so many years had been misdirected, so many years when he could have been doing certain things and he'd wasted it doing something else. Might we note you can't get a single month of that time back, not even a single minute or second. Once it's invested, that's it. For 14 years, they'd wasted their time. What about you and me today? Are we guilty of wasting our time because we've misdirected our investment? Spiritually, we've put things into a bag with holes in it, and we now have nothing to show for it. That's a tragedy. Because on the day of judgment, we'll have to give an answer for how we invested our time, what we did with it, the choices and decisions that we made, a bag with holes in it. Some further thoughts about all of that. Reminds me of a song that sometimes we sing. Perhaps you remember it. Earth holds no treasure but perish with using, however precious they be. That song tells us, doesn't it, in its reminders about that are we directing all of our matters to what's here upon earth? If we are, we're filling a bag with holes in it. Hosea 8, 7 told the people of that day, You've sown to the wind and you've reaped the whirlwind. They scattered a lot, but they didn't reap anything. It's going to be sad on that day of judgment to be in a position like that, isn't it? Isn't that reminding of Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8? where on that occasion it was to the Galatian brethren that Paul had these rather stern comments to make. He told them, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Are you sowing to the flesh or are you sowing to the Spirit? Am I sowing to the Spirit or am I sowing to the flesh? Every one of us tonight must answer that question. In the matter of self-examination this evening, we perhaps can summarize our lesson in the following way. These are an attempt to highlight some of what we've studied this evening. First, as we begin the study of the book of Haggai, we set the historical setting, reminding ourselves of its placement and what it was that was descriptive of that era in time. With that in mind, we began to make some applications. First, consider your ways. That's the key verse to the book of Haggai. If we remember nothing more about it than that, we should perhaps remember the thrusty of the entire book. After learning about our need to consider our ways, we then revisited the issue of where are our priorities. 
those people of that day had a misdirected priority, and so too may we. We saw the need for work. The interesting feature of the work of the church still needing to be done by you and me, of course. And then finally, that impressive situation concerning a bad investment. Tonight, if you've invested poorly in a spiritual way to this point in your life, you can make a change tonight. You can remove the funds from that bad investment bank and put them into the safest, most secure bank imaginable. It's the bank that, in fact, has its vault in heaven. Jesus wrote or spoke for us in Matthew 6 in the following language, "'Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth, doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also.'" Tonight, where is your treasure? Are you in need of considering your ways and making a change? If upon consideration of your ways, your, your ways, your life is directed properly, then consider that priority a good one and proceed onward toward your heavenly home. But if you need to make a change tonight, the God of heaven pleads with you to seriously consider your ways and make a change tonight. A hymn of encouragement has been selected. And if there's one or more here in the audience that may need to make a public response... It may be that you have never obeyed initially the commandments of the gospel. God through Christ commands you to believe in, the, in Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess the sweet name of Jesus as a son of God and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If we could be of assistance in that way this evening, the baptismal waters behind me are ready and warm. Everything is prepared. You don't need to leave this building tonight lost. You can become a member of, of the body of Christ. If you have become a member of that body at some former time in life, but you no longer are faithful, you have made the same mistake that they did. The foundation was laid. They started the work, but then for 14 years they did nothing. Maybe you began the work with Christ. You labored for a while faithfully in the kingdom, but adversaries occurred, priorities were misdirected, and the work has now been dormant for days, perhaps months, maybe even years. It's time to come back to your first love. God through Haggai challenges you to consider your ways and come back tonight. We pray publicly with you and for you. And if we could do any of the, either of those things with you and for you tonight, if you would, why not let that be known while together we stand and while we sing.